This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. This week we'll hear why knowing more about climate change could help you stall doing anything about it. Decision expert Joe Arvai joins us. We'll end with a voice from the first refugees from rising seas. But first, an industry insider says recycling is a myth that just postpones the inevitable collapse. This is Alex Smith. The truth can be difficult to hear. It's even harder when somebody kicks a sacred green cow like recycling. When John Buffington wrote to me about his new book saying recycling is a myth, standing in the way to a greener world, I got defensive. When he told me he was a corporate exec for a major American beer company, I told him no. But Jack, as he's called, is also a postdoctoral researcher at one of the premier universities in Sweden, the country with the lowest landfill rate in the world. Add to that my own doubts that what I recycle is actually heading anywhere useful. And here we go with the new book, The Recycling Myth, Disruptive Innovation to Improve the Environment. Jack Buffington, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Nice to be with you. Let's start with your credentials. As I understand it, you research what actually happens to our coffee cups and packaging in both Europe and America. Is that right? That's correct, Alex. All right. Now, Americans, at least green Americans, tend to picture Europe as the leader in cutting consumer waste. True or false? Alex, I think it is true. And I think it's true because it's better than what's being done in North America. And as I call it, it's good but what we need to solve environmental challenges is great. So um, as has been said, good is the enemy of great, and I think our goals should be higher than what they are today. All right. Now, in the old days, Jack, a person could see the local dump, maybe take out a few things that could be used again. Now waste hauling is a huge industry. Is the waste industry, because it's so efficient, part of the problem? I think it is. But I wouldn't categorize them as the culprit because they're on the back end of the supply chain system and they're doing what uh, us consumers are asking them to do and that's to whisk away the waste. My premise is that we need to fix this problem on the front end and then I think uh, the waste management of the world will respond differently if the front end of the supply chain is fixed. Now the front end, you mean the actual design of, let's say, beverage containers that we use. That's correct, Alex. That's, that's my main premise is that while collecting materials and recycling them is good, it'll never be great and will never reach full reuse if these materials weren't designed to be recycled in the first place. And weren't they? A couple of them are. Uh, the aluminum can is highly recyclable. You can take a used aluminum can and turn it into a new aluminum can with a high level of efficiency. Glass bottles, if they're being used over and over again in a returnable manner, are highly recyclable, of course. But that also does cause some supply chain issues with higher fuel costs because the containers are heavier. But then we run into the fastest growing container, and that is plastic containers. And these containers were not designed to be recycled. In fact, they were designed to be anti-nature in a way, you write in your book. Yes, it's an unfortunate truth. And... You know, when I went to Sweden, my goal was to bring back to the United States a um, European-style zero waste. And I eventually got to the point where I realized that this material is the largest problem in the recycling chain. 
You know, if my wife goes and gets a coffee, it says right on the cup that it's 100% organic and totally recyclable. What is the happy cup fallacy you write about in your book, The Recycling Myth? It's the premise that if a company puts on the container that it can be recycled, that people assume that it will be recycled. So all they have to do is take that coffee, well, coffee cups aren't, but you can take a a water bottle and put it in your own little plastic container. And then after that, it gets, the problem gets solved. That is only true in a small number of cases. So that plastic water bottle that you throw in your recycling container has to have value. And if it doesn't have value, it it won't be reused, even though you've gone through the effort to recycle it. So what is downcycling and why does that matter? It matters because when you take a plastic water bottle and you recycle it and then you turn it into that plastic decking or something that doesn't have the same value, that's creating a strain on the environment where in order to create a new water bottle, you have to extract oil or you have to extract aluminum or or paper. So you haven't solved the problem of the environment because you continue to pull natural resources into the supply chain by not taking a plastic water bottle and turning it back into a plastic water bottle or taking aluminum and turning it into an aluminum can or even upcycling it by turning it into a car or a building or an airplane. Okay, now we know that a lot of our plastic bottles are made from petroleum products and that has problems as far as climate change goes. So some companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle's are introducing bottles made from plant material instead of fossil fuels. Will they help reduce our carbon emissions? In my point of view, as long as the bottle is manufactured in the same way as a petroleum-based bottle, it will not. So if you take an organic material and you plasticize it, it cannot be recycled. So all you've done is taken a front-end material that is renewable and then turned it into an, an inorganic problem on the back end. So that's one of the problems. The other problem is that there's so many different types of biomaterials that it's caused a strain on the recycling systems, making it even harder to collect and reuse these materials. All right, and you write about allegedly green bottles like Nature Works from Cargill. Do they just naturally biodegrade? I mean, I picture if I get one of these bottles and I just toss it over by the side of the road, it's going to somehow melt back into nature. Is that true? (laughs) It is not true. Um, And again, it gets into the whole polymerization process. So if you take a natural material and you use a manufacturing process that is unnatural, the end result is a synthetic material, even though it originally started off as corn. So the difference between a petroleum-based bottle and a cargo corn PLA-based bottle in the end is pretty much negligible. And what does it take to really compost those PLA bottles? There are a few industrial composting operations in the United States And if you throw it in your normal recycling stream, you can't expect that it's going to get to one of those composting facilities. The other problem you have is in a lot of countries around the world, especially in Asia, these water bottles are ending up in the ocean. And obviously, there's a difference between biodegradation and photodegradation. 
So this is creating a, an environmental problem. And there's a lot of confusion around what composting and biodegradable and photodegradable means. Uh, most consumers don't understand what it means, and most recycling facilities aren't equipped to handle it as well. So there's just a few industrial facilities, and the likelihood of your compostable container getting to it is very, very rare. Why did San Francisco stop using them? I think the problem is, is that they believe that these materials could be handled very easily, and then when they found out that the supply chain system couldn't handle it, then they, they quickly realized that it was a bigger problem than actually using a PET bottle where there was um, recycling infrastructure to handle it. Now, we talked about the difference in culture between Europe and America. What on earth is a bin cam? <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the UK, I think there was a company, a university that looked at social media as a way to increase recycling rates. So there's a recycling container in the United Kingdom. A camera would be attached to it. So you could increase uh, acculturation of recycling by putting the camera there and all your friends could see what you're doing and what you're not doing. They could see what you had for dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They could they could see if you're eating things are good and bad for you. And it's again, I think this gets into more of a folly than it gets into a real solution that's going to help both the economy and the environment. Yeah, I, I had to love your chapter subhead titled EU Sustainability Slowing Down the Planetary Collapse. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, I, th I think this is where I, I really appreciate your open-mindedness in talking about this because a lot of people would look at my title and say, wow, if you're against recycling, you're against the environment. And the only thing that our recycling programs are doing today is mitigating how much plastic is going into our ocean, mitigating the impact on CO2 and all the other impacts. It's not solving the problem. If these containers can't be reused, you can't take an old container and turn it into a new container, then you're not helping the environment. All you're doing is slowing down how quickly it, it creates the problem that we know of today. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Jack Buffington. He's a supply chain specialist and a researcher who's published a book about the myths of recycling. Now, despite your research for a Swedish university, you don't seem to suggest that America go forward towards these zero-waste policies. Why not? Well, the first reason for this is that I actually went there to do so and I looked at what was happening in Sweden, and I saw that despite the fact that Sweden is advertised as a zero-waste nation, it only recycles about 35% of its materials. 50% of its materials are incinerated in a waste energy scheme. Now, it's a clean way of handling it. So when uh, Sweden burns its excess waste in order to turn it into electricity, it captures the effluent so it doesn't go into the air, but it's downcycling. So I started to see the reason why this is the case, and the reason why this is the case is because Sweden is using the same materials that we are, and if these materials can't be reused in the United States at a high level, they can't be reused in Sweden at a high level. So I also thought about differences between our cultures. In Sweden, there's a high culture of conformity towards the environment, and we don't have this culture in the United States. So even if these programs worked in Sweden, which they do not, it would be very difficult 
to get Americans to adopt to it. So in my opinion, the right way of handling this is to use innovation to create these materials that can be reused and therefore there will be acceptance by Americans because it are, these are programs that will work and they won't require Americans to go through all the steps of recycling that a very environmentalist Sweden will do that an American won't. And how does the United Kingdom compare to countries like Sweden or Germany when it comes to handling the waste stream? I think the, the United Kingdom is probably halfway in between the United States and Sweden. So their recycling rates are not as high. So there is waste. Um, it is more of a market-based approach. So the recycling rates in the United Kingdom are higher than they are in Sweden, but you don't have that culture of adoption. So when things don't work, you start to have people who start to lose commitment to the programs. So talking to a lot of people in the United Kingdom, there seems to be a, um, even though the EU directives want their recycling rates to be higher, there's a lack of conformity in the culture because they just don't see this as solving the problem. And could you just, Jack Buffington, give us a quick little snapshot about the attitudes towards recycling in Japan? Japan is a nation with maybe the highest conformity to recycling programs, and it makes a lot of sense because this is an island nation natural resources are hard to come by, and it also happens to be an island nation that's very close to a large manufacturing nation called China that will take all of its recycling materials and reuse them. So I would also say that there's a lot of innovation in how the Japanese look at it, but I think it's an anomaly if you compare how things are in the United States or Canada or Mexico or even in Europe. So it is a great example, but I don't think you could look at what they're doing and apply it to our geography or our culture. You mentioned Mexico. You're set to do a talk in Mexico City, which you say is headed towards an environmental catastrophe. What's that about? Absolutely. Actually, I was there two weeks ago, and Mexico is now the largest consumer of, of water bottles. And it has a lot to do with a growing population and also a poor water distribution system. So Mexico does a very nice job of recycling materials like aluminum that are valuable, but uh, water bottles and plastic are recycled at a very low rate, if at all. And this is creating an environmental problem. And it's not only in Mexico, but it's also in developing nations in Asia. In fact, the top five nations responsible for plastic in the ocean are all Asian nations. These are countries with growing consumer populations and no recycling infrastructure. They do not have the recycling infrastructure in place that we have in the United States, Canada, or Europe. And so this is a growing environmental problem that is not going to be solved with traditional recycling programs if they take 10 years to get into place. Right. We just need better containers in the first place. And that's where you started out with your book. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in the village where I live, everything except glass is dumped into a single big metal bin, and that's hauled away, as they say. And I've heard it's shipped all the way to China to be separated and processed there. That sounds insane, and it must be hard on China. What really happens to that trash in China? Well, China has adopted uh, a new program called a Green Fence Program, where they are more particular about trash that's coming from Europe, Canada, and the United States. 
So this has also uh, created a larger landfill problem in Canada and the United States where we cannot dump our waste to developing nations. But the, the even stranger part of this is that in a city like Beijing, a lot of its plastic is used very, very poorly and recycling rates are really low, even though they're receiving all of this plastic from other nations. So there's not a lot of good controls in place, and there's a lot of environmental damage associated with it. I'm told the last paper recycling mills in Canada are at risk of closing because these single-use recycling bins produce paper and cardboard that are soaked in so much food waste they can't be used for quality paper. What have you heard about that? That is exactly true, is most companies use what is called industrial-grade corrugated. So that means that you know, companies like Miller Coors or Coke or Pepsi will collect the corrugated, and that is clean paper that can be reused, but the paper that goes into your recycling bin is often not used for the reasons that you just mentioned. It's contaminated, and it's not just paper. Um, it's also glass. In the United States, in the single stream recycling, 40% of all glass that's collected is thrown away, and I think that number is growing. So the unfortunate side of the story is is that a lot of consumers will only be put out enough to do single stream recycling, but that creates a lot of waste and not a lot of um, good recycling materials to reuse. Now, Jack Buffington, I appreciated your hard looks at the realities of recycling until I got to your solutions. So I think we should go back to the beginning. Why do you say that current recycling may be standing in the way of real solutions? Because I think that being an employee for a consumer products company, being a consumer, seeing how the whole supply chain works, there's a feeling of contentment that all companies have to do or all consumers have to do is throw these containers in another container and the problem solved. In the publicity of my book, I've talked to a lot of waste management and environmentalist professionals, and the sad story that they're telling me is that there is a lack of passion around this issue because people just think that the problem is being solved. It's not being solved. There needs to be greater awareness of what's happening, and I think if there would be, that there would be a greater emphasis to solve the problem instead of partial efforts of mitigation. Why do you think a voluntary recycling program will work better than charging people at the cash register for bottles or any consumer waste? Well, I I don't think a voluntary program would work better. What I believe would work better is a voluntary mandatory program. So I call it a voluntary recycling program. And how it would work is, is that um, as a consumer, you would purchase your containers at a supermarket, you would use your loyalty card. And at that point, you would have a choice to either recycle or not. If you promise to recycle, you wouldn't be charged the deposit. If you didn't promise to recycle, you would. And after 30 days, if you promised and you didn't, you would be charged that deposit. And the reason why this will work better is is that this would be a self-funded program. And recycling programs in Europe, Canada, United States are not self-funding. So they run into a problem of either a program deficit, which governments don't want to fund, or they run into a, a problem where they're not providing the full deposit back to the consumer. So this approach will actually make the program self-funded 
But in the end, as a consumer, if you're not going to recycle, you should be charged the deposit. And so what this does is put the opportunity with the consumer to make the right decision. In Europe, laws make retailers and manufacturers responsible for their packaging waste. Isn't that a good idea for Americans and Canadians too? It is a good idea if it's market-based. The reason why it doesn't work in Europe is if you look at these containers, if you would say a large consumer products company is responsible for its containers, and yet if you look at these containers that they're using, they're the same containers that are not able to be recycled. So it needs to be an approach where we actually really hold these companies responsible for their containers, their containers, not general PET plastic containers. So you would say to company X that your container needs to be 50% recyclable, and if it's not, we're going to charge you a penalty. That would give the company incentive to make changes in the composition of its containers rather than what's happening today. Looking at other options, Jack, what is aerogel? (laughs) Aerogel is a material of the future, and it's not going to be ready anytime soon. So it's a nanomaterial. And the reason why I chose, you know, this is an example in my book to highlight is that I believe that we're on the cusp of a material science revolution. And for those of us old enough to remember the late 90s when the dot-com revolution changed how we do business through e-business, I think in the future there's these new materials that are nanomaterials that are going to offer the same industrial specifications, but in a way that's going to not just not hurt the environment, that's going to improve the environment. So what will happen is there will be a link between the environment and industry that complements one another as opposed to economic growth coming at the negative impact on the environment. So aerogel, there's there's other possibilities. And I think, there, Alex, there's possibilities that we can't even conceive today. But what I want to have happen is I want there to be more emphasis on material science and um, some of these chemists and metallurgists and people I'm talking to to let them solve this problem through new definitions of containers rather than trying to solve the problem on the back end of containers we've been using for 30 years that have been proven not to be environmental. Now, I totally agree with the dream that you just uh, described to us, but I have to say I'm a little worried about nanotech or any new material we will invent because we have a past history of creating things that turn out later to be really harmful And, you know, we make these things with a lot of enthusiasm, little testing, and not much suspicion about our intentions or abilities. Why aren't you worried about nanotech? I think if we look at it this way is that you're absolutely right about some of these technologies. But again, they're not being designed for recycle. They're not being designed for the environment. So we need to look at the supply chain system, the industrial supply chain system, as an extension to our environment. And we need to look at the ecosystems in our natural environment as an extension of our industrial systems. So these materials that you talk about were not designed with that in mind. But in the future, I think there's great possibilities for that to be the case. And I think companies are going to see that in their best interest to design materials that that are complementary to nature. And I think there's going to be money to be made for these. And I'm really leery of solutions that try to look at industry and 
the environment as two, you know, two antagonistic parties, and it's on both sides of the table. I think there's a future for this to look at it differently, and I think probably a lot of people in your audience are younger, and they will look at this thing with a different mindset than some of the older people. So I believe there's great opportunities for this, but it's going to take some time. I just think we need to focus on it, and it will come sooner. Now, I have one final complaint about one statement in your book. You say, a model of consumer austerity is not only un-American and anti-evolution, but also unnecessary. I couldn't agree less. I think we need a complete reorganization of civilization to live within the planetary means. Do you really think we can just tweak the consumer model of society and keep on going? It's not It's not a tweak at all. It's, it's an absolute transformation. And uh, let's, let's think of it this way. When I was in Mexico City with the large amounts of poverty that exist there, if we said that we're going to save the environment, but, but at, at the same time it's going to impact the economy, I don't think a lot of people in developing societies would be okay with that. So the reason why I said it's unnecessary, Alex, is because if we live in the same industrial model that we lived in the last 200 years, I absolutely agree with you. But there's got to be a paradigm shift on how business works within the environment. And if you think about it, uh, economic growth could happen through dematerialization. So if you think about it, um, a smartphone, think about all the different things that your smartphone can do that 20 years ago you had a computer, you had a telephone, you had an alarm clock. And so I think there's a way to transform things through the use of materials to dematerialize at the same time leads to economic growth. So I think that even if you tried to stop innovation, you won't. So what we have to push for is a model between the economy and the environment that is complementary so that we achieve goals of improving people's lives at the same time improving the environment. Jack, do you have a website or Facebook page for people to follow up? I have a Twitter account. It's jbuffy1. I'm not on Facebook, and I do not have a website yet. Okay. Our guest is John, or Jack Buffington. He does research for the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. He's a specialist in supply chain management for Miller Coors Brewing Company in Colorado. Buffington has written several books, including Progress, Technology, and Seven Billion People, A New Solution for Capitalism. I think his newest book, The Recycling Myth, Disruptive Innovation to Improve the Environment, is definitely worth the read, whether it's for business people, politicians, but especially for Greens who need to get real about the greenwashing that's going on with our waste. Jack, thank you so much for your vision and for joining us on Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much, Alex. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Does concern about climate change depend on the culture where you live? If you know more about it, will you be more likely to support action? New research has some answers which may surprise you. Our guest, Joseph Arvai, is an expert in how decisions are made by humans. He's the Max McGraw Professor of Sustainable Enterprise and the director of the Herb Institute for Global Sustainable Enterprise at the University of Michigan. Joe is also co-author of a new paper in the journal Nature, Climate, Change. Joseph Arvai, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
It seems like a basic assumption we may all have. The more we know about climate change, the more we will be concerned about it or even motivated to change. True or false? You know, it seems intuitive that that would be the case. So the answer is kind of two-pronged. Some new research that's emerging on on the, the importance of culture would say, no, not so much. But that counterintuitive finding is what we wanted to look more deeply into. And in our case, what we're finding is that, yes, indeed, knowledge does matter an awful lot. Is scientific literacy necessary to care about climate change? This is a really interesting question. So no, and I think this is kind of the crux of some of the concerns we had with some of the research that's emerging on this topic. Most research that looks at how much people know about climate change is measuring exactly what you asked about, general scientific literacy. And what we find when we look at general scientific literacy is that, no, it doesn't tend to correlate very strongly with concern about climate change or the willingness to act on climate change. On the other hand, if we look at more domain-specific knowledge about climate change, that does play a larger role. So I think that's the problem, is how we actually are looking at knowledge and then making inferences about what sort of general literacy says about climate change, which, you know, I think is, is something that only tells a very small part of the story. Now, in a press release about this study, there was something that kind of worried me. It says, quote, greater knowledge about the biophysical dimensions of climate change tended to dampen public concern, end quote. What does that mean? Well, if we look at how people sort of assemble their knowledge about climate change, we can look at a number of different factors. One of them is what's causing climate change. Another factor is what are the impacts of climate change going to be. And then a third factor would be kind of the biophysical elements of climate change. This is all of sort of the technical stuff that explains what climate change is. So it's about CO2 concentrations and the greenhouse gas effect, and it's very scientific. What we found is the more people tended to know about that, that particular kind of crunchy scientific kind of detail, the minutia about climate change, the more they knew about that, the less concerned they were about climate change. We think that's because whenever you talk about sort of the the technical elements of a problem, instinctively we as human beings tend to dehumanize it. We sort of lose sight of what's actually going on and what does that mean for the things that we care about. So it kind of makes sense when we think about this, that the more you would sort of focus on the technical dimensions, the more kind of insensitive you would be to the actual sort of human and environmental consequences of climate change. And that, in turn, I think is what accounts for this dampening of concern that we measured. This is disastrous news for me, Joe, because as a science broadcaster, I spend a lot of time talking with experts about the details of how Earth systems respond to greenhouse gases. And I, if I'm actually dampening public concern, maybe I should change over to sort of a talk show chat format or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I certainly don't mean to be, to be critical of, of you or people in your profession or, or the many others who I think are doing you know, really great work on getting the message out about what climate change is and, and, and what it means. I think the, the, the bigger picture for me is I'm not going to come out and say, you know, don't talk about this dimension of climate change or don't talk about that dimension of climate change. What I will say, though, is that if we really want to move the needle in terms of concern and if we want to move the needle in terms of action vis-a-vis the decisions that both individuals can make and also policymakers can make, I think we need to really have a frank conversation about what's causing it and what the impacts are going to be. It's not a function of curtailing the conversation or going to one kind of discussion over the other, but it's really to provide sort of a robust treatment 
of what the overall kind of nature of the climate problem is. And, and frankly, while that's important, and, and our research demonstrates that that's important, it, it's still not enough. I mean, there's much more that we would need to do to actually move the needle in terms of, of impact that goes beyond people raising concern. But I guess the key thing for me is a more well-rounded treatment of the different dimensions of climate change in our sort of public outreach and public education and policymaker education efforts is really what we need to be focusing on. And meanwhile, I think we're going to continue to talk amongst ourselves. Now, a second pool of assumptions involves the idea that various cultures will react differently to climate change. What is cultural cognition? Cultural cognition is a, is a really interesting body of research that's emerging. Um, it, it sort of had its, uh, its birthplaces at Yale, where a number of, of, of researchers are, look, are looking at the role of cultural variables in a population and what those cultural variables mean for people's concern about a variety of things, climate change being one, nanotechnology being another, gun control being yet another. And what they're really looking for is to what extent do people's cultural sort of descriptors, which they might wear as sort of badges of honor, so to speak, to what extent do those cultural descriptors influence people's perceptions about and concern for a variety of different things that are sort of topical in the news these days. And what cultures did you study for the paper in Nature Climate Change? What we tried to do was to look not at different countries as exemplars of different cultures, which I think is is something that a lot of cultural researchers end up doing. And in turn, what they really end up doing is not measuring culture at all. They measure political ideology in different places, the United States, for example, as a proxy for, for culture. What we wanted to do instead was look at what are the different dimensions that make up sort of someone's kind of cultural composition And that includes things like to what extent they believe in hierarchical orders in society that those who work the hardest uh, deserve the most benefit. To what extent do people uh, ascribe to altruistic worldviews in their lives? To what extent do people feel connected to the environment as sort of kind of key ingredients of what encompasses or what would sort of make up our individual cultural badge, if you will? And then to really get a robust picture of culture, we then looked at those different dimensions across six countries, China, Canada, the United States, the UK, Germany, and Switzerland. And through that kind of more in-depth process, that deeper dive, we were able to, I think, come up with a much richer picture of cultural variability, which we could then plug into some research on what culture and also knowledge would mean for concern about climate change. Now, we both know that American ideas flow out to the world through television and movies and brand name products and tech. Uh, How does this American influence show up in research about attitudes towards climate change, or does it? You know, I think it does. You know, uh, and this is not meant to be a critique of any individual researcher or any individual uh, school of thought on how we should measure things. But I think there's, there's a tendency for research, particularly research that comes out of the United States, for the different variables that get used as sort of the predictor variables in a study like the one that we did, to be heavily skewed in the direction of what could loosely be described as American culture. So if I look at the work that's coming out of some of our partner institutions, you know, culture is personally not what I think they're, they're measuring in a robust way, with all due respect to them. I think what they're really measuring is 
uh, American political ideology. So it's, you know, where do you fall on the left-right divide on the, in, in the United States? Are you way on the right-hand side where Donald Trump is sitting? Are you just kind of left of center where Hillary Clinton sits? Or are you way left of center where Bernie Sanders sits? And that gets used as the proxy for what culture is. And I think if we look at studies of concern about things like climate change or gun control or abortion or nanotechnology in the United States, it makes a great deal of sense to, to, to look at those kinds of variables as a driver of concern about those different issues. But if we really want to measure the impact of culture and if we really want to measure the impact of culture and compare it with the impact of something like knowledge, I think we need to, to dig a whole lot deeper than kind of an American political ideology as a proxy for culture. And I've often wondered how people in China, the citizens not directly involved with the government, perceive climate change. How do they see it? What did you find out about that? You know, China was, uh, was an interesting outlier in our, in our research. So concern for climate change was, was certainly there. But it wasn't nearly as strong as we saw it in some of the other countries. So if we look at a country like uh, Germany or Switzerland, concern about climate change was, was very powerful. Uh, if we look at countries like the UK and Canada and the US, also uh, a great deal of concern about climate change. If we look at China, um, you know, significantly less concern about climate change. We have some theories about why that might be, but it was, it was really a stark finding. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Joe Arvai from the University of Michigan. We're talking about a new paper he co-authored. The title is Knowledge as a Driver of Public Perceptions about Climate Change Reassessed. It's in the journal Nature Climate Change, published April 25, 2016. Other authors are from the Institute for Environmental Decisions in Zurich, Switzerland. Well, you know, in a presentation you made at the University of Calgary, you suggested an ethical oil station with a menu of choices based on the sources, the carbon emissions, and more. I think that's a super idea. What if we had informed choice at the pumps about the fossil fuel products we buy? Oh, boy. I, I think your listeners in, in Alberta in particular don't want to hear this. If, if you presented people with a, with a gas station where you could pull up the different pumps and choose different kinds of gasoline based on where in the world they came from, what we found is that based on people's priorities about the different kind of elements of what goes into making gasoline from the environmental implications to the kind of tailpipe greenhouse gas implications to things like human rights considerations and the reputation of the country that produces the oil. Oil from the oil sands in Alberta comes in in last place, unfortunately. Um, whether it's oil from Canada, to some extent oil from, from Nigeria, which is not known for a strong human rights record, at the end of the day, the environmental implications uh, associated with pulling that kind of oil out of the ground really stands out in people's minds as a reason not to buy it. Uh, other sources of gas, gas from the United States and uh, oil from Saudi Arabia suddenly becomes much more uh, popular amongst consumers. It's not a pretty choice, though, as you say. So while you were at the University of Calgary, you were swimming upstream for sure. For example, as a former Michigan boy, you said Calgary could become the next Detroit. Why would you say that? You know, this goes back to, I think, the, the conversation uh, that we were, we were just having about energy and oil. The, the comparison I was drawing was one where, in Detroit, the city's wealth and services were built upon an industry that really did 
only one thing and did that one thing very well uh, until they didn't. So as the automobile industry rose in Detroit, population grew, uh, what it meant to be a Detroiter in terms of the services you enjoyed really became quite exceptional. And then over time, as more competitors came into the marketplace and as attitudes about transportation and automobiles began to shift, Detroit slipped a little bit. And as a result of that, people who had the money and could move did move. You saw a lot of people move from the city to the suburbs where they perceived that they would have a more affluent lifestyle. And then ultimately, we saw the collapse in Detroit. In Calgary, I was arguing that we were on the path to the same thing. I wrote this piece, I think it was back at uh, the tail end of 2013, You could just see over the horizon that prices for oil were likely to dip. Uh, At the same time, you could see all of this growth in in a city like Calgary with great new services, a burgeoning population. And my concern was if kind of the appetite for the product that Alberta and in particular Calgary was, was making and making well suddenly slipped, you could see the same kind of crumbling and, and unfortunately collapse in Calgary that you saw in Detroit. Uh, I think the the sad kind of end note to that story is, you know, that's kind of happening in Calgary right now. I think the city is, is, is in some pretty tough times. The province is scrambling to try and figure out what to do. I just read in the paper the other day that pipelines are back on the table. The Premier of Alberta has done a big about face on pipelines, which is something that she campaigned uh, against when she was running a year ago. So uh, I, I think there's a there's a there's the ingredients for a crisis there. I really hope they're able to pull out of it. I think you're absolutely right. I had a relative in Calgary. He was working in a subsidiary to the oil industry, lost his job, had to sell a house and get out. Meanwhile, they just built a brand new hospital so large that it had a shopping mall built within it. They've got new roads built all over the place. The suburbs were expanding out into the prairies. Nobody knows what's going to happen there right now. Yeah, no, it's, I think the situation is, is, is potentially dire. I know that uh, there are a lot of really good people out in, in Alberta and in Calgary working on this. I know that the new prime minister in Canada has made kind of revitalizing Alberta a priority. I remain hopeful, and, and in particular, I, I hope that this is the kind of wake-up call that gets people in a place like Alberta to realize that in order to protect itself against the kinds of shocks that, that are likely to happen when you rely on only one sector of the economy so heavily, that they'll begin to diversify their portfolio when it comes to certainly energy, but other things that the province can do well. Alberta and Calgary in particular have have sort of touted themselves as Canada's energy capital. Uh, In fact, I think the slogan of Calgary has just been changed to feel the energy. And unfortunately, in my personal opinion, I think Calgary and Alberta is really the oil sands capital. It's not the energy capital. And I think there's an opportunity to be the energy capital, but it's going to require some fundamental changes in how the city and the province think about its its future prospects. Sure, if they could get a solar or wind industry, there are a lot of wind machines in Alberta, but that's another topic for another day. Joe Arvai, you are an expert in something called decision science. What is that? Decision science is uh, is kind of this interesting, uh, never dull marriage between psychology and economics and a few other disciplines. Basically, it's divided into three different parts. One part is what do economic and psychological theories tell us about how people should make their decisions if they were perfectly rational beings. The second part is focused on how do people actually make decisions, recognizing that they're not perfectly rational beings. And then the third part, which is what's really interesting to me, is how do you 
bridge the gap between those two things. If we know that perfectly rational people ought to behave in this way and that people who are not perfectly ra rational behave in this different way, how can we sort of bridge that divide so that we improve the quality of both individual and group decision-making about a variety of things, ranging from individual decisions at the, at the household or consumer level all the way on up to the biggest policy decisions of our time? Our recent history is littered with spectacularly bad decisions with consequences, really bad ones. I mean, the decision by the Australian government to double down on coal comes to mind. And of course, George W. Bush's classic invasion of Iraq is maybe the worst decision this century so far. Why do governments make such bad decisions? It's hard to, to come up with a single diagnosis, but in my view, I think some of the biggest problems are that people don't really look carefully at how they bound the decision problems or opportunities that they're confronted with. People like to take complicated decisions and simplify them. People like to take decisions that require long-term planning and an analysis of a series of linked decisions, and they like to boil those down into just one-off decisions that they can make and forget about. So that's one part of the problem. Another part is that people don't think very deeply about the range of objectives that really ought to be in play when they make decisions, uh, especially complicated ones, and then building off of that how you would actually measure progress or success or failure when it comes to those individual objectives. So, for example, if we had a room with 10 policymakers and they all agreed that protecting the environment is important, I'll bet that we would get 10 different answers on how you would measure progress with respect to environmental protection. Uh, a third dimension is people just don't do themselves a favor when it comes to looking at alternatives. You know, when we make a decision, we really ought to give ourselves a bunch of different things to choose from, things that are substantially different from one another and that test our assumptions about what's important to us. Oftentimes, decision-making is boiled down to single alternatives and single objectives. And, and to me, that speaks more to what an ultimatum looks like than what a really good decision looks like. And I think lastly, people just really struggle with trade-offs. The idea that you have to give up something that you value in exchange for something else that you also value, but for different reasons, this causes all kinds of conflict in the mind. And we're just not really good at, at making those kinds of trade-offs. So across all four of those dimensions, uh, the work that, that I do and that my colleagues do is really focused on trying to get people to make better decisions well, we get frustrated, too, about the amount of information that's around. Does big data really help make better decisions? Well, it certainly could. You know, we certainly have no shortage of it out there right now. I think the, the pitfall that we face with big data is that we use it in the wrong way, if you will. So if we have a decision to make, a first instinct is for us to sort of scan the horizon to see what kind of data in the big data set out there is that sort of at our fingertips, and we try and kind of plug it into the decision that we're making. In my view, what we really ought to be doing instead is asking ourselves, what is it that we're trying to achieve with the decisions that we're making? How is it that we're going to measure success or failure or progress or a lack thereof with, with respect to those goals and objectives? And then, and only then, to say, okay, now that we know what we want and how we measure it, let's see if big data has some answers for us. So it becomes, big data becomes, or should become in my view, something that's in service to decision-making, not necessarily something that drives decision-making. And if big data doesn't have the answer for us, then I think that then calls upon us to do additional new data collection that answers our questions. But to think that the answers are just out there because they must be, I think is, is naive and problematic. 
Bringing this back down to the personal level, our listeners already care about climate change, but you say there are right and wrong ways to communicate about it. How should they go about it? Our research suggests that focusing on the causes of climate change, particularly the human causes of climate change, and focusing on the human um, and environmental impacts of climate change are going to be where the most traction is gained. That's not to say that focusing on the technical dimensions of climate change isn't going to be important, but if we really want to see people raise their concern and and potentially be at least open to the idea of changing their behavior, those uh, in our research seem to be the places where there's the, the most promise. That said, kind of tying that question to the things that we just talked about, knowledge is really only the, the thin end of the wedge. It's really what kind of gets us in the door, gets people aware and concerned. The next step is to actually do the heavy lifts on the decision-making side. And I think that's where we often fail when it comes to things like climate change, is we assume that, well, we can educate people, we can build their knowledge, we can raise their awareness and their concern. And then some magic will happen. They'll come about, they'll, they'll have an about face on climate change and they'll suddenly make better decisions. And the reality is that that's not how it works. There are big gaps, uh, big gulfs between the quality of our decisions and our sort of awareness of problems and our knowledge that we still need to address. But then taking the next step to decision support, I think, is absolutely essential. We have been talking with Professor Joseph Arvai. He's the director of the Herb Institute for Global Sustainable Enterprise at the University of Michigan. Joe is co-author of the new letter just published in the journal Nature Climate Change, titled Knowledge as a Driver of Public Perceptions about Climate Change Reassessed. Find links to this paper and Joe's work in my weekly show blog, published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. Joe, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Radio Ecoshock. The first voices of refugees from rising seas are trickling in. This report is from Earth Matters Radio in Melbourne, Australia. The people of the remote Carteret Islands off Papua New Guinea find the sea has turned against them. Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced on Wurundjeri land at 3CR Studios in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast right across this continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. We, we had to move because of what the sea is um, doing to us as a people of the islands. I mean, a lot of us will see these pictures and we say, so what's wrong? These islands look really beautiful. It's true. They look really beautiful, but the sea that we love, the sea that we grew up with as island people is, is now turning against us as a people who live on those islands. And this is why we, we have to move. That's our shorelines are eroding fast. The people of the Carteret Islands, a coral atoll off the coast of Bougainville in Papua New Guinea, have been called the world's first climate refugees. Like many low-lying islands in the Pacific, the Carterets have been experiencing the effects of climate change firsthand. They have watched as their shorelines have been eroded by the sea, king tides have swept right across their small islands, and salt water has literally bubbled up through the ground. The people of the Carterets have asked for assistance from their government and from governments internationally, but so far nothing has been forthcoming. So they decided they had to organise themselves – 
In 2006, the chiefs of the Carteret Islands formed Tulele Piesa to organise the relocation of their population. And in 2007, Ursula Rakova visited Australia to talk about the plight of the Carterets and the work they were doing. Nine years later, she has returned and the message is as urgent as ever. My name is Ursula Rakova and I come from a small island in the Pacific, Carteret, which is part of Papua New Guinea. I am the executive director of a local organization that was initiated by the Council of Elders from Carteret, basically to relocate 1,700 people from the atoll to mainland Bougainville. Carteret is 86 kilometers of uh, Bougainville, uh, 54 nautical miles off the northeast of Bougainville. So the islands are very isolated, but they, just like any other Pacific atoll, the people are isolated, but they are peace-loving people. We live mainly off the sea. Our food is from the sea. Uh, we've been fisher folks for many generations. How many people do live on the island? There is a population of 2,700 people, but we are also part of the outer atolls of Bougainville. We are Melanesians, but they are other brothers and sisters from Feed Island, which is Nukumanu, Motloks, and Tasman. And we are all isolated from Bougainville, but we are all part of Bougainville as a province of Papua New Guinea. We have to move 1,000. 700 people, meaning we have to move 150 families off Cartridge Islands due to impacts of rising sea levels, shoreline erosion, frequent storm surges, and also our food is being lost because the land is getting smaller. Every year our seawalls are being washed away. Our food gardens virtually cannot produce food that Normally, we would have produced many years back. Uh, so we, we have lost a lot of our food crops. And there is hardly any arable land where we can grow our food anymore. And this is why we have to move. Have you yourself seen this, these changes? Have you lived through these changes yourself? I was on the island three months ago, uh, basically going back and seeing my family. And our work. Although we are based on mainland Bougainville, we frequently go back to the island to basically monitor the projects of uh, raised bed gardening and mangroves uh, planting on the island. So you have actually seen quite a bit of difference as well between the times that you've been there. I have seen big, big changes. One of the islands, which is um, an island that belongs to my clan, it has been divided in half and the gap continues to grow each year. I was going to ask you, there's an expression we have in Australia, you probably know this expression, you're a little bit like the canary in the coal mine. Having to, very few communities I think would be moving places the way you're having to move these things. I wanted to ask you about some of the stages, because you, you've been involved in this and the stages that are involved in actually moving people. And my sense of it is that to relocate people, there's two stages. One is the local people that you have to move, and then the other stage is the people whose community the people will move into, they have to be prepared as well. 
Tell us a little bit about the first stage, getting people in the community ready to go. What what have you been doing? Thank you. We we actually have a, a three-stage um, process in our program. The first stage is preparing families of the island to move. And the second stage is making sure the host community is is welcoming to the new people who who will move into the uh, location. The third stage is basically making sure that both communities, the relocated families and the host community, are working together to continue to build these relationships. So the first stage uh, meant that we had to do a lot of community assessment of how the islanders wanted to move, why they wanted to move, mm. what were they going to to do when they moved to a new location. And in the second stage, we needed to get the host community to go back to the islands to experience their life on the island themselves so that they will be welcoming to our people. And so it needed a whole lot of these exchanges, working together, building relationships. And in our third stage, we continue to build on that. We want to solidify relationships by integrating both the relocated families and the host community and making sure that we are strengthening our relations through our clan tie systems. So we are doing that. And we continue to do that by making sure that we take part in the ceremonies of the host community as well as they taking part in, in whatever we do in our new location. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. Find the rest of that half-hour program on refugees from rising seas at Earth Matters, 3CR Radio Australia. The web address is www.3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. The Pacific Islanders are running out of time. We did it. Nobody helps them. Nobody takes responsibility. It's just the start of pulling back from rising seas, first in distant places, then in your own country. Radio Ecoshock is also out of time for this week. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. We'll go out with a bit from my new climate song, Change This Thing.